Lent one is, is just, I love it. It's so beautiful and dramatic. Um, the, the purple vestments, which are dark and rich. Um, this is the second year in a row that Broderick, or the Reverend Canon Broderick Greer, has chanted the great litany with its terrific and haunting and specific petitions. And the procession led by a verger and all its formalities zigzagging throughout the cathedral. The procession, from one point of view, is kind of funny. I bet you, some of you know why, because it really looks like the verger took a wrong turn several times. And then we end up finally at the right place as if God was leading us all along. Lent has so many different layers of meaning. The the most obvious and the one we've heard the most about, those of us who are Episcopalians, The one the prayer book emphasizes the most is that Lent has to do with penitence and with preparation. Preparation being getting ready for the Easter season. Getting ready, if you're in the inquirer's class or catechumenate, getting ready for baptism and confirmation and all of that. The Easter season that is to come. But there are other um, levels of, of meaning when it comes to Lent. And one liturgical historian who's prominent and an Anglican or Episcopalian, he's unearthed this other meaning of Lent. Um, He discovered that in the Alexandrian tradition, that their tradition was that the Lenten season was a 40-day post-Epiphany fast, mirroring Jesus' 40-day post-baptismal fast, in the wilderness that we hear about in the gospel reading. In other words, Lent in the Alexandrian tradition was not a getting ready season, but actually a looking back season. Looking back to Epiphany, looking back to Jesus' baptism, looking back to that season or time in which God's incarnation um, comes to fruition in a baby. So remember the baby, remember the manger. And the marriage of God's incredible incarnation in a baby with the star that led the Magi and the divine light even in the heavens that married with the divine light in the child. And that light drawing the Magi and the Gentiles and the whole cosmos into this incarnation. That's a lot to go through, and we should think and pray about all that and realize where we've been. That was what they did in the Alexandrian tradition. In other words, a, a looking back. And that's really, really wise. We sometimes just obsess over where we're going, and we're certain that we know where we're going. You know that old phrase, we make plans, God laughs. But in reality, what we really need to do sometimes is to put our feet up and think and feel and pray and remember where we've been because we've been through a lot. Lent could be a time of that. Not looking ahead, but just remembering what you've been through. This gospel reading, the whole bit about being in the wilderness and listening to the voice of, of, of the devil on one hand and the guidance of the Holy Spirit on the other, that's a lot. It's so rich and intense. Lent is beautiful, but it's so rich and intense. Ash Wednesday, my goodness gracious. The ashing, it's so much. 
And so I often wonder if what we should do is, is come at it all indirectly. In other words, that you know how you sometimes can't or shouldn't ever look directly into the sun, but in order to know where the sun is, you look and see where the light has fallen, upon whom and what the light rests, coming at the sunlight indirectly. I think that's a wise approach to the intensity of this season. So, a couple of stories and an anecdote. When I graduated from college and I was about to go to seminary and I was just gotten married, I decided that it was finally time to go and talk to my parish priest about my family. So I went to Father Joe in my hometown and I said, Father Joe, I come from a dysfunctional family. And he said, don't ever say that again. It's redundant. Just say family. In my family, the, the person then and now who was, is the biggest influence on me is my maternal grandmother, God rest her soul. If you're ever close to me in the prayers of the people, her name's Mary Fuller, and I usually pray for her. She's the one, um, I learned a lot from other family members too, but she's the one who taught me how to remember how to feel my way through all that I'd experienced and not just put it into intellectual categories the way I sometimes like to do. She was, first and foremost, a great storyteller. Oh, my gosh. She, um, you have to visualize her a bit. She usually had her hair dyed red. She chain-smoked cigarettes. It was a different day and age. So there was always this cloud of incense wafting around her as mysterious as we experience today. And the way she told stories that just fascinated me and got inside of me was she, she, every little detail mattered. Even the smallest detail mattered as much as the biggest detail, so much that you couldn't tell what was the most important thing or person ever. Every little thing mattered. And I sat on the edge of, our seat, of my seat listening to her. She's had a huge influence on me as a, as a priest, which is a little bit ironic or paradoxical because she herself was not religious, although someone told me at her burial that she used to play piano in a Baptist church. And when I knew her for 18, 20 years, she never went to church, so I'm certain there's a story there, and I wish I could have asked her. She also taught me how to feel my way through life. My grandmother was emotional in the best sense of that word. If something was sad, she cried. If something was funny or absurd, she gave the greatest belly laugh ever. And she told me several times throughout the course of my childhood, Richard, sometimes you choose to laugh rather than to cry. Psychologists use the term emotional intelligence. That's so boring when I think about my grandmother, but that's it. She had this range to her soul and mind and body that just opened me up and gave me a freedom that really nobody else did. 
I think of her as a kind of Lenten figure if Lent's about remembering and feeling and realizing where it is we've been long before we have any plans of where we're headed. Several years ago, I was talking to somebody in the parish who was going through a hard time. And she was going through a crisis that was through no fault of her own. This was someone who had a fabulous job, a professional person, kids, served on all these boards throughout the city. Busy, 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 busy. And hit a wall in a crisis that took her to rock bottom and shocked her. And what she said at the end of the conversation was, she said, I don't have time to cry. It was one of the saddest things I've ever heard. She did not have time to cry. And she walked out of my office and I'm sure went to another appointment that was really pressing and important. There's a lot written these days about secularism. If we're living in a secular world, I actually don't think we are, but that's another class for another day. But that story and that experience with the person who didn't have enough time to cry makes me wonder if secularism is less the inability to believe and more the inability to feel, especially when we don't have the time. We, ready for a vignette, we um, have a new interim sacristan. Her name is Evans Owsley, and she started on two days before Ash Wednesday, and I said, oh my gosh, Evans, that's like baptism by fire, Um, you know, starting on top of Ash Wednesday in this incredible season, and Evans is calm and been a sacristan before at a huge chapel at Swanee, just like this place with lots of people and complexity. And Evan said, oh, I love Lent. It returns me to my own body. It returns me to my own body. We will have had a fantastic Lent, a great Lent, if we do just that, return to our own bodies to feel and remember all that we have been through. And if we do that, we'll also be preparing at the exact same time, preparing for Easter and for resurrection, for the place of resurrection is always the human body and soul.